as we um, as we're gearing up for our Uganda run, I got to kind of look through some videos and some pictures this week of my time in Uganda. I've had the honor and privilege of visiting Uganda twice now, and Brian likes to give me a hard time because when I'm in Uganda, I like fully become myself. Like it's like I was made to be there, and I think a big piece of that is that I absolutely love to travel. I absolutely just cannot feel more myself in in that space where I get to find and see new things and see new cultures and see how people interact with each other differently than where I live. And it's this idea, I think, for me that I get to step away and like strip away some of my everyday that makes it just feel me feel so much more clear and more me. And um, Cornerstone, I just want to thank you because this last year, over the summer, I got the chance to take sabbatical. Um, After eight years of being in ministry, I got the best gift that I've ever been given in having two months to be able to just spend time away. And when I found out that sabbatical was happening, I asked my husband, I was like, is it okay with you if I do everything in my power for us to be gone as much of this as possible? And because he's so good to me, He said, of course. And so we got to, as a family, um, my husband and I took our four kids for an entire month, it doesn't even feel real saying it out loud, um, to Italy and Spain. And we spent the most amazing time together, connected, and just getting to take in the awe of those two countries. And then following that, I got a few days on my own um, and then was met up with a few of my dear friends where we walked for a week on the Camino in Spain. And that is a sermon for another day because what an experience. Um, And then lastly, um, we got to spend, my husband and I got to spend a week in Belize celebrating our 20-year anniversary. And I traveled home with this deep longing to hold on to that sense of freedom and joy that I find in other places. To take that and bring it into my everyday, keeping my eyes wide open. Well, I can't really fully explain what it is about travel, but I notice that it brings me to the very center of who I am in this story that God is telling. And today what I want to do is look together at a portion of Paul's letter to his, to his church in Corinth where he is longing to do just that. He's centering them down on the center of the abundant life that Jesus brings but I need to be honest with you. These verses, as I've been studying and reading them the last few weeks, have put me through the ringer and back. You are about to enter into group therapy session number two. I know Aaron invited you last week to his therapy sesh. It's my turn. Brian's never, ever going to let Aaron and I preach back to back ever again. Okay, but you guys, it's going to be great because here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through a little session together where we talk about shame and we talk about our unmasking of it and God's glory and then we're going to tie it all up at the end using our imaginations and it's going to be awesome, right? Okay. In all seriousness, I can't thank you enough um, because this is an absolute honor to me that I get to come up here today and share just what the Lord has been showing me through his word and that I get to walk together with you in it. So thank you. And I would love to pray before I start. God, 
I thank you. I thank you for your goodness and your kindness. And what an incredible father you are. One that on this side of heaven, we can't even begin to fully understand. I thank you, God, that you call us your kids. That you long for us to be connected to you. Lord, I pray you would use the power of your words today to speak that truth into my friends. I pray, God, that your voice would be very, very, very loud today in saying the things that you need to say to your people here. I thank you for this honor and opportunity in this place we get to gather as your family. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, before we open up actually the words that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, we need to actually, I'm going to back you into these verses a little bit. And we got to back in through an Old Testament story because Paul's going to reference it here. And I just want to kind of bring you up to speed with where he is. Moses... Y'all know Moses, right? Okay, Moses, he at this point has been leading God's people through the insane ups and downs and sideways turns of calling God's people, leave them leaving captivity into the wilderness, and now he's doing the work of establishing God's covenant relationship with them. Well, the thing is, is that in that process, he gets a tad bit frustrated and there's a whole situation with the tablets and they get thrown on the ground and I'm really thankful that I'm not the only one that gets angry sometimes. And what happens is that Moses in his leading hits this point of frustration and exhaustion and he pleads with God. He comes to God and he says, okay, I need you to show yourself to me because if I'm going to keep walking this out with your people, I cannot do this unless I know that you are with me. So God, show me your glory. So God in his goodness tells Moses, he says, okay, ready? I want you to be ready. And in the morning, I want you to come up, up onto Mount Sinai, present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. So God was simply telling Moses, I want you to get away and draw near to me. So up the mountain, Moses goes. And up on the top of this mountain, he has an incredibly magnificent experience with the Lord. What we know is that for 40 days and 40 nights, Moses sits in the presence of the Lord, listening, worshiping, just soaking it all in. The goodness, the glory, the mercy, the compassion, the kindness, the mightiness of God. And after his time with the Lord, he comes down the mountain out of that close intimate time with him, and he's ready to establish his covenant relationship with the people, but what he doesn't realize is that his face is actually quite literally radiating God's glory. His face was shining like the sun. And I love that he, Moses is coming down and after being in God's presence, he's reflecting it back, but he doesn't even know. He doesn't know it until he comes into the presence of the people and those people take off and run away. And what Moses does next after that interaction is an interesting illustration, I think, for our own lives. Moses places a veil over his face to cover up the Lord's glory that he's carrying. 
Paul brings this story into the light as he writes to his dearly loved church. So for our time today, we're going to open up into 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I want to focus in on just the last few verses of this section of that letter. So 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 18 says this. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Paul in these verses is setting our feet on some very foundational solid ground. What he's saying is, is that because of Jesus, we are called to enter into the presence of our creator fully free, unveiled, so that we may more clearly and brightly reflect the glory of the Lord out. But before I think we step into that freedom and that reflecting glory, I think we have some work to do in addressing this thing that is hindering us from that. Our veil. Paul uses the illustration of a veil because Moses actually quite literally took a cloth and covered up his face. I think for us now, I think sometimes the word we'd probably use that we're more familiar with is this idea of a mask. Most simply, it's just the thing that we hide behind. The thing that hides us from being most fully free and our truest self. Now, I know for some of you, you might say, well, what in the world does that truest self even look like or mean? Well, in order to answer that question, I need to take us to the start. And this is where the kids in the room are going to be like, oh gosh, Miss Carrie, I know you always tell us this, how God created us in his image. But I think it's so incredibly foundational for us on a daily basis to ground ourselves in that truth, that we have been created in God's image. In Genesis 1.27, the words actually say, God says, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness. And I think there's like a ton that could be said about the hour and us and all of that. But what clearly is being said here is that at the core of it is that God, Father, Son, and Spirit created us to be like him. Reflections of him. You see, you were created to be his presence, to carry his likeness, his spirit, his very essence on earth. I want you to let that sink in for a second because I think for many of us, we've heard this a thousand times, but how often are we actually letting it take root? You have been created with a purpose to bring the goodness, love, light, glory of our creator into the world. God's intention and purpose from the very beginning for, was for you to be fully free to live out that purpose. And I really wish with that I could say, that is the end of my sermon, go do it, amen. But I think we often know that that isn't the way it goes because we walk into our daily lives, into our interactions with others, into our school rooms, into our home, into our relationships with our friends and our spouses and our kids, 
into our presence with God with a fail hung over our faces, hiding the exact thing that we've been created to do. We often veil up, making, masking our truest purpose. And that masking actually started in the beginning too. In the garden, we know that Adam and Eve, when they fell from the original image, they became aware of their nakedness. They made themselves clothes. They hid. They covered up. But that hiding was never a part of God's equation. And we see that because God spoke some questions to them when they started this hiding thing. He said to them, where are you? Why are you hiding? Who told you that you were naked? It was never God's intention for us to feel that. But that awareness that was brought to them on that day was actually something that carries on into all of humanity. We now all get to deal with this idea of shame. Last week, Aaron talked about a shame, and he talked about a, a healthy version of shame that's very, very different from what I'm addressing today. The veil that I'm talking about is what Aaron called toxic shame. It's a shame of condemnation, of feeling shame around who you are. It's the lies that fill your head that rob you of your truest identity. The way Aaron spoke of last week says things like this. Hey, that wasn't the greatest decision. Let's change, correct, and move the other way. But see, this kind of shame is a whole nother ballgame. This shame says things like this. You, you are not good enough. You don't measure up. You definitely aren't doing enough. You are halfway, actually, maybe instead, you're halfway doing everything. You are those things that happened to you when you were a kid. I actually know what your parents really think about you. Shame says you aren't pretty enough. You are not smart enough to be standing in this room. You are not strong enough. You do not have enough talent to even show up in this place. Who in the world do you think that you are? Or I think for some of us, shame says things like this. Don't show your weakness and do not let them in because if you let them in, they might actually see that you have flaws and scars and pain because honestly, you are strong. Don't let that guard down. It's the idea that you will never be good enough or not wanting people to potentially see that you're not good enough which all rolls itself into this deep-seated feeling of being unlovable and not belonging. I am here to tell you that shame is the enemy's greatest scheme. And it makes me so incredibly angry as I watch it play out in my own life. It's his scheme to make you feel unworthy, unloved, and disconnected from the image of God you carry. 
And I know this feels so heavy, like, oh, good night, Carrie. This is like a lot. Um, but I, what I really feel is that every one of us experiences these feelings. It lurks in a lot of the places that we step into. It's in our opinion of what our body looks like. It's in our opinion of how good we are, our skills at things. In our roles as being a mom and dad, a husband and a wife, a kid, a daughter or a son. It seeps into our singleness, into our sex lives, into our finances, and into our friendships. And as I was reading the Moses account and then Paul's reference to it, something actually interesting popped out to me. It was that Moses was wearing his veil for actually two really unique reasons, which I think are possible metaphors for us today. He wore his veil because he had seen how, it, how other people reacted to what was happening. So he puts a veil on. And I think often we cover up with shame because of our interactions, but even more than that, our perceived expectations that others have for us. And we also, though, cover up, and this is what Moses also did. It says that he covered up because the glory that he was, was showing began to fade, and he didn't want people to see that it was going away. And how often I think we cover up because of our own insecurities, of us feeling like, oh man, don't let everybody else see what's actually happening. So I want to look together at how these expectations of others play out. And as we, as we live our lives in a world, we have, oh my gosh, we have thousands of varying messages that are being shouted out at us on a daily basis, causing us to throw that veil of shame over our face. Because those messages are saying, be this, don't be that. Say this, but don't say it too loud. And don't say, don't, but don't say that. Look like this, but not like that. Brene Brown is the queen of research and writing around this topic of shame, and she does a brilliant job of breaking it down and how this externally fueled shame shows up both for males and females. Ladies in the room, take a deep breath. Our externally fueled shame says, do it all. Do it perfectly and don't let them see you sweat. For us women, it's this web of unattainable, conflicting, competing expectations of who we are supposed to be. Can I get a nod of the head to anybody else? Okay. I think for men... Your shame isn't so much maybe this conflicting, competing expectation. Your shame says something very simply and very loud. Do not be perceived as weak. And so you oftentimes shut off to the vulnerability that actually brings so much life. When my kids were little, this amazing, exciting new platform hit the interweb called Pinterest. I remember being on the waiting list. There was like a waiting list to get onto Pinterest in the early years. And I was like so excited. I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be like a place that I can go and find all the things. But little did I know that the exposure to all the crafts and all the party ideas and all the home decor things out there 
were going to lead me into a season of my life where I was going to feel really weighted down by the feeling that I was never going to be enough for my family. And Pinterest was just the beginning of this monster that I like to call social media. And now, lucky us, we get to carry this thing around with us in our pocket everywhere we go. I don't know if I'm alone in this, but I really struggle with my relationship and boundaries around social media. And on top of that, my husband Josh and I are also really wrestling with making some decisions for my teenagers and their relationships with social media. Because I so badly want to protect them from this game of that the Instagram posts and the Snapchat filters are showing them of who they're supposed to be, what they're supposed to look like. See, things were a little bit simpler when I feel like we were teenagers. Those perceived expectations, they didn't come through the phone screen. They instead had a bit, for me, it was a bit of an interesting source. And it's going to get real complicated because I'm actually standing up on a church stage right now. Okay? I was raised in the 80s and 90s in an evangelical American church. Can I get a witness? Okay. I'm, oh, right now, okay, guys, if you're like 20-something or younger, I'm really sorry. I'm going to get really irrelevant, okay? Like, you're going to have no idea what I'm saying. Just stick with me. I promise I'm coming back, okay? All right, because we're going to play a little game of, you know where you were a youth group kid in the 90s if, Okay? <laughs> You know you were a youth group kid in the 90s if you had a WWJD bracelet in every color. They have come back, and I don't know how I feel about it. Okay, the earliest you got up all year was to go to see you at the pole. You often wore a shirt bearing the name, proudly bearing the name of your youth group. Or better yet, you had a collection of t-shirts that had logos of some sort of like popular brand that had been transformed into this proclamation of your devotion to Jesus. Okay, and it did some really cheesy wordplay on like the secular brand or phrase. A breadcrumb and fish. That Coca-Cola logo that they turned into that sweet Jesus Christ signature, or this one was awesome, body piercing saved my life. (laughs) You you were, I, I could see so many of the kids are like, what in the world is she talking about? Okay, you were a youth group kid in the 90s. If you kissed dating goodbye, went through a purity-themed Bible study, or often got asked, wait, are you engaged? Because you would wear your purity ring proudly on your wedding finger. You definitely had a collection of Christian punk and ska tapes or CDs, MXPX, Supertones, Five Iron Frenzy, Jars of Clay, Okay, but alongside that, you know you had your secret stash underneath your bed of your Green Day, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, and mom and dad better never find that because you're in trouble. Oh, and if you were lucky like me, 
I grew up in Southern California where a lot of these Christian bands were from. And so on a regular basis, my friends and I, you'd jump into our church bands and we'd drive to the show and we'd skank and we'd mosh pit the night away. Oh, it was awesome. Okay, you also probably in your room with that secret stash had probably a collection of souvenirs on your, on your shelves from your short-term missions trips that you took where you blew the minds of the kids at the VBS with your skits and mime shows. Oh, and lastly, you were exposed to some disturbing end times books and films. Oh my gosh making certain that you had had asked Jesus into your heart 37 times in fear of not wanting to be left behind. Okay, you've been properly identified now. I want to address, though, a possible reason for our masking even into our 40s. The messages taught to us during that era in the church were ones that caused many of us to feel the need to hide and wear shame heavy over our faces. The legalistic, fear-based do's and don'ts, purity culture messages seeped into our undeveloped brains as teens and crippled us well into our adult years. I really do think that the church at that time, it was doing what it thought was best. But unintended or not, the messages many of us heard in our teen years have caused us to feel we were never going to be good enough or pure enough or live up to what Jesus would do. So we have developed into adults that wear this cover of shame, still feeling like our identity and our self-worth comes back down to the black and white do's and don'ts, wrong and right. The last decade for me has been a journey of healing to shed those lies that threw a veil over my eyes. I want to recognize today the hurt that's been caused by some of you from the church. I could unpack a lot more of this, and I would be more than happy to have another conversation at another time. But for today, I want to say, I see you, and I'm sorry. I'm standing here today as someone who swore I would never again be on a church staff. To say that this veil removal work, what God has shown me is that it's just as much a work that needs to happen in the church as it is a work that needs to happen in me. So don't give up on his church. There is redemption and healing and vulnerability and freedom that can flow from the walls of our church that our world desperately needs. Okay, since we're already down this group therapy road, here we go. I want to talk about our own inner insecurities. And for me, that takes on the personhood of what I call my inner critic. My counselor once told me that I should name her. I haven't really done that, but okay. It's a process, guys, right? Okay, so my inner critic is very, very loud. I have a very loud voice that is constantly telling me to try harder. And as an Enneagram 2 helper, 
I often get sucked into the lie that I'm only good enough and accepted if I actually am meeting the needs of others. And so you roll that into me being a full-time working mom as a female pastor. Let's just say that the veil of shame hangs heavy over my head in a lot of places that I enter. I have to fight the lies on a daily basis that tell me I am not enough for each of my four beautiful kids. That I'm not loving them the way they need to be loved and seeing them the way that they need to be seen. That I'm not enough as a pastor in getting done all the things, the organizing and the checking in on people and the supporting them and praying for them and returning all the texts and the emails. And then on top of that, the lie that tells me that as a female pastor, I don't belong up here. Oh, and these emotions? Yeah, that's a thing. Um, I am a highly emotional person, and I am having to do a good work, and the Lord showing me that that part of me is actually his greatest gift to me in connecting with him and connecting with others. But oftentimes, the lie that's in my head is that, Carrie, you are way too much. When you step into a room with all men, you are way too much. Calm down, stop crying. It makes them feel uncomfortable. Okay, yep, I'm never going to be allowed to do this again. Um, Okay, those are my veils, and I know that those might not be yours. And so even this week, I want you to really do a work in thinking about what yours looks like. Because for yours, some of them, they might be this defensiveness that you often throw on, blaming others for your shortcomings, Or you putting up a wall in fear of letting other people in. Or maybe it's the pride that you hold when you show up and say, I'm great. No matter what your veil takes on, I do know this, that our broken nature leads us to believe that on our own accord, we can and are supposed to do it all and be it all. And so you better hide all the ways that you are not those things. But you see, Paul is reminding us we are supposed to take all of that off. And if we go back actually to the story in the beginning, the, gen- the creation story, and we look at Genesis 2, it actually makes it very clear in there that we were not created to wear this veil of shame. Because it says, Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. Isn't it interesting that the feeling of shame actually stands alone in this passage as the one thing that's written down that we were not meant to feel? It's not something that God intended for us. So what do we do about it? Paul's calling us, he's actually demanding us to step out from underneath the veil and step into the light. In another translation of this verse, this is what 2 Corinthians 3.17 says. We can all draw close to him with the veil removed from our faces. And with no veil, we all become like mirrors who brightly reflect the glory of the Lord Jesus. Paul's calling us to address the veil 
to turn to Jesus and take it off, to unveil. There, as I was reading, I was noticing there seems to be this really cool connection here to the beauty and mystery of marriage. For those of you that are married, you can kind of go back and remember that wedding day. You can picture it, and it's the day where the union of husband and wife happens, and it begins with the bride, the bride who's wearing a veil, and she comes walking down the aisle toward her husband. And what's so amazing is that the person she's drawing near to will be the one that will most intimately know her. And when she stands before her groom, he pulls, he draws the veil back, revealing her beauty. And it's in that union that their life together starts. But here's what many of us know that are married. The beauty and the joy and the awe of the wedding day isn't exactly how all the other days of marriage play out. Yet... It is in that insanely vulnerable relationship that the greatest mystery I think that God has created lies. The person in marriage, the person that knows us the most, knows all of us, the good, the bad, the ugly, in our everyday is the one that grows to love us the most. And then you can see this mystery as it plays out in this passage. Because God is saying here, drawing near to me in the union of Jesus is where you're going to be most fully known, fully exposed, all while being most fully loved. And the key that Paul's drawing them back to was that Jesus, it's Jesus. He's the one that ended all the veil wearing once and for all. The man who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. An insanely, divinely, divine mystery-filled exchange took place on the cross. Because you guys, you see that day, all of our sins were left there. Our guilt, our shame, this freaking veil we always want to walk around with. It was removed and forever gone, and we walk out of that in all of God's righteousness. We possess the perfect and complete righteousness of Christ, because what happened to Jesus happens to us. It's the thing that Paul keeps saying in this letter, That through Jesus, this shame, this separation that works to keep us from the one that longs to pull it off is eliminated. The literal veil that day was torn. The veil that hung in the temple, the veil that hung separating God's presence from the ones that were trying to enter into it, it got ripped in half. The separation was no more. The veil has been removed. We are now seen by our Father as fully complete, fully righteous. The Greek translation of that word righteous actually means the state of which one ought to be. See, Jesus brings us back into the fullness of us, back to the garden, back to standing upright, confident as his child of God. 
I want to look at some words that Paul wrote in another letter in Romans. We're going to look at Romans 8, and I'm going to start at verse 10. Now Christ lives his life in you. And even though your body may be dead because of the effects of sin, his life-giving spirit imparts life to you because you are fully accepted by God. Yes, God raised Jesus to life. And since God's spirit of resurrection lives in you, he will also raise your dying body to life by the same spirit that breathes life into you. And he goes on into verse 15 and says, And you did not receive the spirit of religious duty, leading you back into the fear of never being good enough. But you have received the spirit of full acceptance, enfolding you into the family of God. And you will never feel orphaned. For as he rises up within us, our spirits join him in saying the words of tender affection, beloved father. For the Holy Spirit makes God's fatherhood real to us as he whispers into our innermost being, you are God's beloved child. In the presence of our loving father, we get to be fully who we were made to be the glorious image of God, fully and completely seen and fully and completely loved, adopted in as his kid, drawn back home. As I was preparing for today, the Lord gave me um, a picture and it actually is a picture that hangs in my room um, that I get to look at every day when I wake up. And it's a picture by one of my very favorite artists, Scott Erickson, and it's a picture of one of my very, very favorite stories that Jesus told. And this is a story about a family that lived in a home, a dad with two sons. And one of those sons decided that he wanted to leave his place of belonging and love and try to see what else was out there. And after leaving and finding pain and loss, and death, he knew his only option was to come back home. So down the road back home he went. With his head hung so low, feeling all the shame I think a human could likely feel. Feeling like he was a complete and utter disappointment to his dad that he had disgraced in leaving. He held the weight of knowing that what his dad was probably going to say to him alongside what his brother was going to say. And so he takes the path home with his eyes fixed on the ground. But what he doesn't realize is that in the distance, there are footsteps running toward him. And this is my carry version in the picture that God gave me. As that dad approached his son, I really think that that dad lifted his son's chin and looked him in the eyes and said, I love you so much and I am so glad that you are home. 
That journey on that path has been something that I have been on for quite some time now. And I had the honor of being a part of a healing care group here at Cornerstone a few years back, which I think was the beginning of me realizing my relationship with this thing called shame. But that also that God's inviting me on a journey with him and dealing with it. And it's it's in that, it was in that process and how I've worked to live that out that I've realized that when I come to Jesus and I settle into his presence face to face, that I experience freedom and a lifting of all that crap that I carry around. A lifting of those lies that are constantly robbing me of my identity. It's when I sit with Jesus and I gaze upon his beauty that I'm reminded that I'm called to live this life with that veil removed. So friends, I want to encourage you today that this might be heavy and it at times feels really hard, but it's a really beautiful, lifelong, daily journey of presenting yourself to the Lord. It's not a one and done, Jesus has saved me and I'm good kind of thing. It's daily walking this out. An intentionality in the moment to moment of my day, staying tethered to my source of truth and light and love. And some days that veil feels way too heavy and I hide. But there are other days that I'm able to step into the warmth and the freedom of the Spirit. Because it says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom to stop hiding. Freedom to know that you are more than enough. Freedom to shine as you have been created to. So the question I want to leave to you today is, when in your week are you coming to him so that he can take off the lies and put on the truth? When are you entering into God's presence face to face? And I think what's so cool about the way God made us, it's another thing I tell the kids all the time, we're all very unique. That sitting face to face with Jesus doesn't look the same as it looks for you or for the person next to you. Because I think for some of you, it might actually be opening up the word of truth and just reading the words that fill these pages that bring life into your being. Others of you, like myself, I draw nearest to him when I'm in worship. Where I, that's the place and space that I can be most fully free. It's a drawing close to him where I'm able to proclaim his glory and might, and it's where I get to feel most seen and unveiled. For others of you, I think it's when you're living out the passion that God's put in you. My husband is an insanely good drummer, and he gets to live that out when he's sitting behind his drum set. Living out his passion is where he gets to feel most fully free in himself. For others of you, it might be in writing, in engineering, and in innovating. It's when the spirit flows through you as a creative that he gets to remind you of who you are. Others of you, I think it's when you move your body, getting your heart rate up and getting that time to be alone and active where God does that amazing work in your life. For some of you, it's being sure that you have time to get away, even if it's just for a short bit in the morning to retreat over a cup of coffee or maybe it's a night away from the noise to just be still. 
For times in my life, and I think for most of us that we've been called to live in community, we get to enter into this presence of God through someone else. It's when we live our life alongside others who get to take us, walk with us on the journey, and speak direct and honest truth into our lives. The Lord has given me an insanely gracious and good gift in my husband who does this for me regularly. He also gave me a grandma that passed away this last year and I miss her voice so insanely much because I knew that when I picked up the phone, I didn't need to tell her all the ways that I was being a great mom or doing my job really well. She just simply wanted to hear my voice and tell me how much she loved me and how proud she was of me. Those were moments that I know that God gifted me to be able to see how he sees me. For others of you, I think it's getting outside and being surrounded by his insanely gorgeous creation. Man, are we lucky to live in the place that we live. You cannot walk outside a door without being hit in the face with the gorgeousness and the awe of our creator. And I really encourage you in your week to take moments when you step out and look around to breathe in the freshness of the air and allow the warmth of the sun shining on your face to be a direct posture of you receiving that truth that you are fully loved, fully alive, and made with a purpose. But friends, this is a journey. I just really want to remind you of that. It's a journey. And I actually think it's the most beautiful part of this whole mystery of us being God's kids because he longs to walk with us in the everyday. He longs to be close and to daily lift off the veil, look us in the eyes and tell us who we are and how much we are loved. Paul says we're being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Look at his face and be transfigured one step at a time, one day at a time. It's a journey. A beautiful, hard, messy, magnificent journey. I want to invite the band up. And we're going to close out with... An exercise that I think in a space that might be a little bit new and maybe uncomfortable for you, but you're going to be okay because, you know, I'm uncomfortable we're, and we're all in this together. Okay. I have found this very helpful in my journey, but also what I've noticed is the kids have shown me what an important role our imaginations play in our relationships with the Lord. So, what I would like to do is ask you to tap into your imagination today, and I'm going to guide you a little bit. So if we want to just close our eyes and take a few deep breaths in and out, in and out. God, I, I know that you are here. I ask you to meet us right now in this space, in our mind's eye. It's part of our brain that you've created and given to us that is so full of life. I 
pray that we would tap in right now to our imagination as we meet with you. I invite you to picture yourself. Picture yourself and set yourself in a place that you feel most alive. That you feel most safe, most free, find joy. And picture yourself there. What does it look like? What can you smell in that place? What are things that your ears hear in that place? And if you feel comfortable, I want you to invite Jesus to come join you in that place. And as he joins you there, I want you to pay attention right now. Pay attention to his posture. Where maybe he's standing or maybe he's sitting or what his face looks like. What expression is he wearing? I want you to ask him to take off your veil. And in doing so, Jesus, I pray right now that you would speak truth into my friends. Listen to what he has to say to you. Listen to his sweet, gentle words. Words of love, of belonging, of who he says that you are. God, I'm in awe of how you show up for us as as dad. I thank you, God, that you long to see us. You long to speak your words into our life. God, keep speaking to my friends, reminding them of who they are, of how you see them fully unveiled. Thank you so much for today. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.